Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to open to Proverbs chapter 12. Last couple of weeks, we have been looking at the book of Proverbs, really for the last probably couple of months, and we've been really uh, keying in on key words uh, in the book of Proverbs. And I showed you how that that's one of the great ways to uh, unlock the Bible. Um, and I also remember telling you that, uh, you know, when you start out as a young Christian and you do word studies, you know, you start out with basic words, but then you grow into the deeper words uh, that really, really uh, give you a, an incredible study. But we looked at the word balance, and we started chapter 11. We looked at the word branch. Uh, we took the word instructions, and we really looked at that one. Last week, we talked about to be established and to be root or rooted uh, in the things of God. And, um, and, and we learn how to use them to unlock the Scriptures. You know, when I teach you the Bible, I'm not just giving it to you so I'll give you something on Sunday morning, uh, but I'm giving you insight into how to, throughout the rest of the week, to really use your Bible. And, uh, and today, we're going to look at another aspect of studying the Word of God, one that you're probably pretty familiar with, but uh, I think you'll see it maybe a little clearer better today, and that is character studies. You know, character studies are one of the richest ways to, to learn your Bible. Uh, and I know that there's many ways of studying the Bible. When I used to really, uh, early on, when I was really trying to put my Bible together, uh, I'd always work for a while on one or two ways, and then I'd switch to another couple of ways, and I'd try to balance it out. And over the years, I've learned that one of the greatest ways to study your Bible is by association, the things that God puts in there that are like other things in the Bible. And yet, again, one of the great ways to study it is contrast the things that God puts in the Bible that aren't like the other things in the Bible. And word studies, uh, you know, we've talked about that uh, last couple of weeks. Uh, sometimes you want to go through your Bible and you want to purely get a historical application. You want to find out what's going on in history. It's invaluable to, to the total package of learning your Bible. Sometimes you want to get the uh, prophetic side to it, and that's how it deals with the second coming of Christ or future events, the millennium or eternity. Sometimes you'll want to take a doctrinal study, and you want to see the specific teaching that the Bible has given you. There's doctrines in the Old Testament for the nation of Israel, and there's doctrines in the New Testament for the church. Got to be able to separate which is which to know your Bible and understand your Bible. And then there's an inspirational way you study the Bible. That is taking things out of the Word of God that purely come to you. They're in your world for you to learn and to get through life and all the things that you deal with it. And then we have character studies. And in Proverbs, you'll find that uh, a character or a person is laid out, and then you can take that profile, I'll use that word, that's a good word, and work it through uh, people in the Bible and really learn from it. It's something that you take and you start and you really can develop it. You know, you associate their lives with the character that's laid out in, in Proverbs or throughout the whole Bible, really. <clears throat> Let me take a minute and show you how it works. Let's just take the book of Proverbs because that's where we're in in our study. You know, the book of Proverbs fundamentally, and you know this because I've talked about it many, many times, <clears throat> the book of Proverbs is fundamentally about a wise man and a foolish man. 
And, uh, you know, also that really goes through the whole Bible as a sub-theme. Uh, you're going to find where there's a man who builds his house on a rock and a man who builds his house on the sand. One is wise and one is foolish. Matthew 25, you've got ten virgins, five are wise, five are foolish. So it kind of follows all the way through the Bible, but it's certainly defined in the book of Proverbs. And the book of Proverbs is about either a wise man or a foolish man. And that's a biblical profile. And you start with that, and you, you know, in the FBI, they have what they call profilers. And I guess probably every police department does. They certainly, they have patterns that they look for. And a really good profiler can look at a crime or a series of crimes or what a guy does or a person does in that crime, and they get a profile of that person. They can tell within an age bracket of how old he is. They can tell his race by uh, certain things that he does. And they really get good at it, and that's how they catch many, many uh, criminals, and they get them, and they, you know, they keep them from getting to the point where um, they, they profile them. And the book of Proverbs does that for us. When we talk about a wise man, you're going to find in the book of Proverbs, it says nine things in Proverbs that is a, sets a profile for a wise man. You want to be wise in your life? Find out what these nine things are. You want to associate with wise people? Find out what these nine things are. At the same time, the book of, Pro, uh, book of Proverbs profiles what a foolish man is. And there's eight things in Proverbs. I've given them to you before. There's eight things in Proverbs that profile what a foolish man is. What you do is simply see those tra- traits, see those patterns, and then you follow them through, and they'll lead you to exactly uh, what the guy is and his, by his actions, and you come away with an incredible way to study the Bible. <clears throat> For instance, you take a wise man and a foolish man, and you profile them. You follow the path of a wise man. You follow the pattern of a foolish man. Uh, and in, in real life, then you can see people around you, people that you work with, people that you're associated with, and immediately you can tell This is a wise man. This is a foolish man. This is somebody I want to hang around. This is somebody I don't want to hang around. And in the Bible, there's some great wise men in the Bible. I I would say that probably Solomon tops our list. He's been given credit as being the wisest man that ever lived, and certainly he was. He writes three out of the five wisdom books that you have in your Bible. I would say that Job is one of the wise men in the Bible. He writes one of the wisdom books. And when you come over to the book of Psalms, you'll find that's your fifth uh, wisdom book. You'll find that Psalms is written by a collection of people. David wrote it. Uh, he's a very wise man. You're going to find that uh, Asaph wrote Psalms 73 to Psalms 83. If you're into music, if you're a singer, if you're somebody who likes music, hey, a study of Asaph is an incredible study. Uh, he's probably one of the greatest, if not the greatest, picture of what a musician should be found in the Word of God. Moses is another author of Psalms, so he's a wise man. You'll find in 1 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 19, the sons of Korah. He, they also wrote some of the Psalms. A guy by the name of Ethan over there in 1 Kings 4, verse 31, he wrote some of the Psalms. You'll find it, uh, a guy by the name of Herman and a guy by the name of Sharkhol and Darda and the sons of Mahal in 1 Kings 4, 31. They're all listed as wise people. You go back into some of the ones you're more familiar with, Daniel. Daniel's the greatest type of the Holy Spirit of God anywhere in the Bible because of his wisdom. You have Joseph. 
He's a wise man. When he has to deal with his brethren who have sold him into slavery, you see his wisdom personified in how he deals with those scenarios. Abraham. Abraham didn't start out too good, but he wound up being the friend of God. You know why? Because he became a wise man. And then you want to take and look at the fools in the Bible. I would think that number one fool in the Bible is probably Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 26, 21, he himself says, I have played the fool and have erred greatly. And he did. He did. His uh, Rehoboam, one of, uh, Rehoboam uh, over there in uh, 1 Kings 12, uh, one of Solomon's sons, uh, he's a fool. He splits the kingdom. And when he split the kingdom, he set the death knell for the nation of Israel. When they got divided, divide and conquer. It was only a matter of time before they were going to go down. Jeroboam, he's a fool in the Bible. He's one of, uh, Saul, uh, he's one of Saul's um, uh, mighty men of valor. And he takes and splits the north tribe. Well, Solomon's mighty men of valor. He takes the north tribe and splits it up. You got Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 18. Bible's filled with them. A wise man in the Bible will, will follow God and his word and take his instructions. A fool in the Bible will follow the world and forsake God's instructions. You got guys like Pilate. You got guys like King Agrippa. You got guys like Herod and Festus and Caiaphas. All people who in the Bible are great studies and character studies and great profiles of what a fool is. And now you have a character study or a lack of character study in a fool's case. And now you look at every situation you get into. Once you learn the profiles in the Bible, once you learn what a wise man is and a fool is by the examples found in the Word of God, then you put them in your own life. As you go through life, you have to deal with scenarios, look at people, deal with situations. Now you have a basis on which you make the value system for your life. So the theme of Proverbs is a profile of two kinds of men, a wise man and a foolish man. Now also you're going to find in the book of Proverbs, but throughout the Bible too, you will find what we call sub-themes. They will be people who uh, are not the major theme of something, but they're also a sub-theme of of good or bad. And uh, there are other character profiles that you can study through. Uh, and it's the same way with all the Word of God. You'll have a second, uh, a main one, and then you'll have secondary ones. Uh, in our passage today, we're going to read here in a moment, uh, you're going to see that. In the book of Proverbs, uh, chapter 31, you have a virtuous woman. She's a sub-theme. And then you have a strange woman or a wicked woman. You'll always have a righteous man and an evil man popping up in Proverbs. And in our text today... Uh, it'll be found and based on a sub-theme found in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 4 and 5. And this will be the virtuous woman versus the wicked woman. It says in verse 4, A virtuous woman is a crown to her husband, but she that maketh ashamed is at rottenness in his bones. The thought of the righteous are right, but the counsel of the wicked are deceit. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus, and we do love you today. We thank you for those that have come out. We thank you, Father, for another day that we can open up the scriptures of this book, and we know we can trust it. We know it's your absolute word, and we just now rest in it today and yet enjoy it as we get fed from the manna from heaven. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For a sake we ask it. Amen. Now, in this profile of a virtuous woman and a strange woman or a wicked woman, you again will have a number of character studies of women in the Bible to illustrate both cases.
You're talking about a woman of virtue. Uh, Man, there's some great studies in the Bible. I would think first and foremost in my mind would be Ruth. She's got a whole book dedicated to her life. And boy, you can see uh, how that uh, she is really uh, uh, someone who has got a lot of virtue. Another one would be in 1 Samuel 25, verse 30, Abigail. In that scenario with David and her husband. In the New Testament, you find uh, uh, Mary uh, and Martha. In particular, Mary, John chapter 11, the brother of Lazarus. She's the one that took the oil and put it on his feet and used her own hair. An incredible woman. In Proverbs chapter 31, we already mentioned we have a case study of a virtuous woman there. And it's an incredible study to take that. And you're going to find that uh, in the Bible, there's two women. There's two women who remain anonymous to this day. But the Bible says that they're great women. And they're one of the greatest studies that you're ever going to take in the Bible. The one is in 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 8 through 44. That's the woman of Shunem. And it goes through that story there, how that she loses her son, and then she gets her son back, and she's an incredible woman with what she does and how she does handles things. The second would be in Matthew chapter 15, verse 20 through to 28, and that's a woman who's got a daughter vexed with the devil. She's the one that comes to Christ on several times and gets rejected flat out. And when you study both of those out, you find that they're two great character studies uh, not only in a personal way that, that any man or any woman could read those and want to have the character qualities that they had in dealing with life. But on a broader scale, uh, the reason why they're anonymous and the reason why there's no name given for them and the reason why there's only two in the Bible that says they're great is because you're going to find that the woman of Shunem is a great picture of the nation of Israel as the wife of God. And you're going to find that the woman in Matthew chapter 15 is a great picture of the church in a relationship with Christ. And they're incredible studies. But then you have the wicked women in the Bible. And boy, they, they, they uh, are great studies too. You have Jezebel, who's the wife of Ahab. How about Delilah back there in Judges chapter 18? Then you have over there in Mark chapter 6, Herodias. Uh, she was the one that married, uh, left her brother and married Herod, that John the Baptist told her that what they were doing, living in sin, was wrong. And then you have her daughter. She's not named, but boy, she's a, she's a piece of work. She's the one who belly danced before Herod. He loved it so much and thought it was such a great deal that he said, you know what? You are the greatest dancer I ever saw, and I'll tell you, I'm going to give you whatever you want out of my kingdom except you can't be king. She went back to her mom and said, what a deal. You want to get a new car? You want to get a new house? You want to get into this? Her wicked mother said, no, let's get John the Baptist beheaded because she didn't like his preaching. There's some wicked women in the Bible. You got the witch at Endor back there in 1 Samuel chapter 28. And the more you learn the Bible, the more you read the Bible, you're going to find that all the witches didn't die out in the Old Testament. <laughs> Few of them made it into the New Testament. Now, along with that, you will have three basic applications that you want to work through in each one of these studies. This, each study, this passage here, for instance, I'm going to use this as an example today. This passage here will have a historical application. In other words, it really happened in history, and there's a point to it that God wants you to understand. It has an inspirational application. That inspirational application that you read something that actually happened historically, and yet the material in it will go right into your life and what you're dealing with every day in life through the principles. And then there'll be a doctrinal application to it. 
That simply means that whatever you're studying about this, even though it happened historically, and even though it inspirationally will teach you something, there's a prophetic application. It's going to fit somewhere, somehow, into something in the future. And uh, this is what you, what you do when you learn how to use your Bible. Now, let's look at the historical of this passage for a moment first. That's, uh, and if you don't have this in your Bible or you got your notebook, you're probably going to want to get some of this down. This is great stuff to go home uh, and put it in your Bible right by this passage so you, you can understand what you're dealing with. Solomon was looking for a virtuous woman. He had had a, thou- he had a thousand wives, uh, but he couldn't find a virtuous woman among them. And the reason is in most cases they were wicked women without virtue. Uh, They had come from all the pagan nations that Israel was told to stay separate from. And, uh, you know, like New Testament Christianity today, uh, uh, that was hard for him to do. And you find that it says there that some of the women came from Egypt. Well, we know that Egypt's a great type of the world, one of the greatest studies you'll take in the Bible. He had some from Moab and from from Ammon. Well, those are the two kids that came through incest with Lot and his own daughters back there in Genesis. You had some, he had some women from the Edomites, from Edom. Well, God wrote a whole book, the book of Obadiah against the Edomites. You had the Zidonians and the Hittites. Yeah, all these nations were nations that God said, you're not to take, you're not to have anything to do with. And Sodom forsook that good piece of advice, just like most of God's people today. Not a lot has changed in couple thousand years of history. In fact, in 1 Kings chapter 11, it's these very same women who are down, uh, his downfall and ultimately the destruction of the nation of Israel. Verse 1 of 1 Kings 11 says, Sodom and love many strange women. And the Bible says on down in verse 3 that those same women that God told him to stay away from, they turned his heart away from God. They brought in all their gods. They brought in all of the junk from their nations. And uh, ultimately, it's his end. But at some point, he finds this woman of virtue that he's looking for. He makes reference to her in Proverbs chapter 31, where he says, who can find a virtuous woman? And uh, some say that it's the Queen of Sheba. There's no absolute proof for that, but she is mentioned over there in Matthew chapter 12 as the Queen of the South, and according to that, she has some judgment, and she certainly was impressed by everything that she saw, but you never know for sure. Uh, You know, finding a virtuous woman is almost as hard today as it was back in 987 B.C., but at some point, he finds her, and then he writes about her, a book to her, and that book is a song. A love song. This is why women love love songs. And it's the book of Song of Solomon. It's dedicated to her. She's called a pearl in Matthew chapter 13. In Song of Solomon chapter 1, she's called a black pearl, which leads people to believe that it was probably Queen of Sheba up from Africa, being black. Now, I don't know what you know about black pearls, but black pearls are pretty pretty rare. And... uh, when you start to come through, I remember one time years ago, I read that, and I was starting to, you know, how that the church is the pearl of great price. I know that the Song of Sodom is about the church, and I saw in Song of Sodom in one where it talked about that she was black, so that would make her a black pearl. I knew he had a thousand wives, and he only found one. So I asked a jeweler one time, who didn't know anything about the Bible, how rare a black pearl was. And he says, oh, probably one in a thousand. I said, amen. He said, what'd you say? I said, never mind. 
here's the lesson from history. It's a great lesson, very clear. Don't join yourself to what God has told you to separate yourself from. That's simple. Those who God joined together, let no man put asunder. Those that God have put asunder, don't let any man join them back together. I mean, it's just that simple. This was Solomon's basic problem. This was Israel's basic problem. This is the church's basic problem. Now, this is the Christian's basic problem. Now, let's look at it doctrinally for a minute here. This virtuous woman who was a crown to her husband will be the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, but she'll be the church in the New Testament. This is one of these places where you have a dual application. You've got to learn those in time in the Bible. We know that in the Old Testament, Israel is God's wife, and in the New Testament, the church is Christ's bride. And Israel was to be a crown to God in the Old Testament as the church is to be a crown to Christ. You say, how do you mean that? Well, a crown deals with a king, and a crown deals with a kingdom. So in the Old Testament, Israel was to be a crown to her husband because the kingdom is the kingdom of heaven, and in the New Testament, we're to be a crown to Christ because the kingdom is the kingdom of God. Now let me show you. When Israel goes into captivity and loses the kingdom of heaven in Psalms chapter 78, in Lamentations chapter 5, verse 16, concerning this time period, here's what it says. He says, the crown is fallen from our head. Woe unto us, for we have sinned. You see, Israel in the Old Testament was a crown to God because she had the kingdom of heaven. In the New Testament, the church is a crown to Christ because we have the kingdom of God. And that's exactly what happened in the Old Testament, and that's exactly what's happened in the New Testament. Israel in the Old Testament would be a crown to God. She failed. The church in the New Testament was to be a crown to Christ, and the church failed. Now, that's not all. Look at Proverbs 12, 4. A wicked, a wicked woman is a rottenness to her husband's bone. That's an awful thing to say. You won't find an anniversary card with that in it. You have to get one of them blank ones and put it in yourself. But that's a great study. You know, the skeleton system that a, a human being has is really the structure by which all the rest of the body is stabilized by. Our skeleton system is the structure, framework of our bodies. Skeleton structure, the framework, and, and when a disease hits those bones, uh, the structure collapses, it falls apart, it gets weak, it gets rotten. And what happened to Israel and the church today is simply the wickedness of Israel put a rottenness in the bones of God, the church, uh, the Old Testament structure that God had. And then the New Testament, this church has got a disease today that has weakened the structure, the bone, the very system that holds the church up. You know, the world has a terrible disease out there, a lot of terrible diseases. But the one that come along here oh, 30, 40 years ago that they'll probably never get a handle on is AIDS, called HIV. And the world has a disease, and uh, that disease is for a man or a woman to become HIV positive. It's a terrible disease, and uh, usually results in death at some time in your life, even though they've got drugs that can forestay that for a while. But uh, I've always thought it was interesting that in Christianity, the church has a terrible disease. You ever notice that? And the church disease does exactly what this verse says. It attacks the structure of the church and degrades it, and it falls apart. 
where the world is HIV positive, the Christian world is NIV positive. And it has destroyed the very structural system of God's church. Now let's look at the third one, inspirationally. Now looking at this passage inspirationally, it's simply this. Be careful who you marry. Now let me say, this is talking about a woman here. Either a good one or a bad one. I can see we're going to get into trouble on this one. But you know it can go both ways. Boy, I've never seen the men take out pens and take notes so fast on any sermon as I have right now. Well, ladies, hang on, because I'm going to flip-flop it here both ways. In particular, you know it can go both ways, but in particular, it's talking about the importance of finding a good wife. Proverbs 18, verse 22, every young man that's single uh, ought to have this verse down, and it simply says, Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing, and obtaineth favor of the Lord. Now, a good wife will bring the husband the favor of the Lord because she's a good helpmeet. She, she has virtue. She's godly. A good wife will stabilize the family. It'll balance, she'll balance out the family. She'll balance out the husband, sometimes with a rolling pin, but she balances him out. Now, the tragedy here, and this is so true, and this is, most husbands never get this. They never do. In a church like ours, you can actually see the process at work. Our church is filled with uh, good, godly women who really love God and the Bible and really apply what they learn, not only to their own personal lives, but to their family. And all you have to do is look around and see, I mean, in a heartbeat, you can tell by the way uh, they train up their children. And, and when their children get a little older, how good their children behave. And when their children get older, older, how good they stay with the families and are not out in the world and how they marry good people and they stay and the process goes on. I mean, you can see it. Now, I know we as husbands, we like to take credit for that because we're the spiritual head of the home. I get it. I understand it. But you know what? The wife plays a big role in that. Now, when a man has a good wife, it reflects back on him as the leader. It's a crown to his head, the Bible says. It's honor to him because he's got a good wife. Bible says over there in Proverbs 31, verse 23, when it's talking about the virtuous woman and all that she's got going for her and how good she is, it actually says there that her husband is known in the gates when he sits with the elders. He's known because of the wife that he has. Now, you know that's true. I don't know if you ever thought about it or not, but you know when people look at you, when they get to know you, or you introduce yourself or in church, they look at you. They don't just, they don't just look at you. They'll look at your wife. They'll look at your family. They'll look at you through those things that are supposed to be the way they need to be. People just do that. It just, it does. Most husbands never, never find or never see the true value of, of a good wife. One time a guy... One time a guy was deer hunting with his friend, and it was a cold November morning, and they were up there in a tree stand, and, and uh, you know, and they were looking out across the field, and this beautiful buck, I mean, it must have been a Missouri National Daniel Boone champion, man, I mean, it was incredible. Come walking right out in there broadside. Boy, the guy got his rifle up and got sighted down on him. And just about the time he did, he looked out a corner of his eye and a funeral procession was coming down the road. His buddy looked at him and he says, take the shot, take the shot. He laid the rifle down, stood up, put his hand over his heart as that 
funeral went by. His buddy looked at him and said, you know what, I've always thought you were an idiot and a scoundrel and a lot of things, but I want to tell you that was one of the impressive things. You let that record buck get away all because you wanted to show respect to that funeral going by. He said, yeah, well, you know, we were married for 35 years. <laughs> Donnie told me that one a while back. <laughs> one, one more? Yeah. <laughs> where's Macy at? Oh, where's Kenzie at? Oh, my this blind guy with a seeing-eyed dog goes into this store, and he's walking around, and he walks in the middle of the store, and the guy's standing there, and all of a sudden he picks the dog up, and he starts holding the dog, swinging over his head like this, you know, and all that stuff. And people are looking at him, and the man who can he says, Hey, sir, can I help you? He says, No, no, no. I'm just looking around. <laughs> Kenzie told me that one. <laughs> Listen, between Johnny, Donnie, Kenzie, and Joe Olstein, I'm good for life, man. <laughs> Most husbands never find or never see the true value of a good wife. They never really value her opinion. They never learn that she sees things differently than a man. Forms a very important balance. That's invaluable. When a wife tries to tell her husband, you know, something, you know, many times the husband just gets mad about it. He gets mad because deep down inside, a little psychology here, he knows he's wrong. He never gets the value of listening to her or taking her advice when it knows something more about things than a man does, and women do. Not much, but they do. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding you. And making an indecision, you know, I don't care what it is. Any decision you've got to make, you're always a wise man when you know all your options. And sometimes a wife can present options that we don't see. Now, I realize that in Christianity, that's not true in the majority of cases. Finding a good godly wife is pretty hard to do. I've got him here, but I mean, I'm in Christianity. That's why when you do find one, it's a very good thing, Proverbs 18.22 says. She's like that black pearl, one out of a thousand. Now, I want you to note verse 4 there. It says, she shall be a crown under her husband. Now, in a Bible sense or a biblical sense, this is in her life, as we talked about. She'll be bring honor, bring favor to the man. But without question, the reference to this also is a reference to the judgment seat of Christ, 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 5. Listen, a good wife will build toward that day. A good wife will realize that the most important day in your life as a Christian after you're saved is the day that you stand before God, the judgment seat of Christ. And in all she does, she sees it as you do. And you get the favor of God and the blessings of God because she follows your leadership and she makes a good part of the team for the Lord. And the Bible says that the judgment seat of Christ, a great verse that I gave you a couple of weeks ago, 1 Samuel 30, verse 24, that at that time, they're going to part alike. You know this, to the lady, just as a bad husband can destroy your life and keep you from giving, fulfilling the plan of God. And I talk about it all the time, about who you marry. Ma'am, you can marry the wrong guy, and all that God has for you goes out the window. 
I mean, you can marry the wrong guy, and boy, I'll tell you what, you didn't prove all things, you didn't follow the process, you didn't get it, so you marry some guy who may be a nice guy, but he's never going to fulfill in his life, what, and you're going to shackle yourself to that, and you're going to lose all that God has for you. But I want to say to the man, so can be a bad woman. A bad woman will put the whole family out of sync. I've seen them where a guy married a gal, and you know, there's all kinds of scenarios where the guy's out of fellowship with God and he marries some gal, or he, he doesn't do, he's, he's backslidden and he finds some gal, marries her, and then he gets right with God. I mean, there's all thousand different scenarios. But you know, we get to the point now where you want to do something, you want to get on fire, you want to move for God, and, and she won't go to church. And when she does go, she causes issues with everybody there. She can't get along with anybody. She'll always find a problem and she'll always bring it back to you and you'll want to get up and go to church and get the word of God and get something and she'll be a lead weight around your ankles every Sunday morning, every Thursday night and everything that you want to do. If she's unsaved, uh, she wants nothing to do with God or the church. Absolutely nothing to do with it. If she is saved, and you know, she usually wants nothing to do with ministry. Uh, She's totally adverse to anything that's really spiritual. Instead of you taking your life and as a team, ministering together and doing all the things that God wants you to do together, you lose all of that because you spend all of your energies trying to deal with somebody that you've linked yourself to but isn't going anywhere. Now, I'm not saying there isn't ways to work around that and there isn't things to do, but boy, as old Paul said, such shall have trouble in the flesh. Now, let me say this. Now, I understand that the man is the spiritual leader. I get that. But it's almost impossible to lead a bad woman. I mean, it really is. It's it's really hard to do that because it can make life such a miserable place at home. And just as a good woman will make the family, a bad woman will destroy the family. The last part of verse 4 says, she, but she maketh ashamed uh, is as rottenness in his bones. And we talked about uh, the bones being the structure of the body. A bad woman will destroy the structure of what her husband will try to build for the Lord. You'll put three pieces in, she'll take two pieces out. And you see this all the time, maybe you don't, but I've seen it all my life in pastor's wives. You have a guy who's a good guy and he tries to do some things for the Lord, but his wife destroys everything he tries to do with her mouth. Everything he tries to build, her attitude tears it down. With everything he's trying to do from the pulpit, she's got four or five power plays going on behind the scenes. She's got a co-pastor mentality. Her husband may be the pastor in the church, but she's thinking she's right up there with him and she manipulates everything. And if she doesn't have the co-pastor mentality, then she's got the pastor's mentality, which is even worse. Listen, I've seen him lie. I've seen him be the biggest gossip in the church. I've seen him be the farthest thing in the universe from a quiet and meek spirit, First Peter chapter 3, verse 4, which the Bible says in the sight of God is a great thing. I've seen it all my life. I've seen churches where the pastor tried to do something. He wanted to do something. He wanted to get something done. And you know what? His wife, because she, whatever she was, problem was, was so insecure or so wicked or so rotten that she had to try to destroy everything that was going on. 
And most times the guy's oblivious to it. I've seen it in churches where they used to have a mother of the year deal. And every year this wife would get mother of the year. You'd think she was the only woman on the planet. And she'd sit down there and the husband would get up and he'd talk about what a great help me she is and all this and that. Everybody in that church saw it as the farce that it was. If they had to vote and do it the way it was supposed to be done, she wouldn't even got church dog catcher. You know, never in life want to miss what's going on in the world and miss the application to Christianity. What do you think of Bruce Jenner? <laughs> Bruce Jennifer. <laughs> See, that's what I thought your reaction would be. Going from a man to a woman, transgender, sex change operation. Hey, and what a sick world we live in. Amen. Vanity Fair puts a picture of her. I don't know if it was, I don't think she looked that way that quick. I think they probably used a lot of computer Photoshop on her or whatever. But there she, he, it is. She, you know, it really is a dilemma for us. You know what I'm saying? I mean, if everybody knows who you are, but everybody's satisfied who you aren't anymore, but they know who you are, what restroom do you use? I mean, I, I, those things, I lay awake at night thinking about that. <laughs> How do you address it? Her, him. Well, I, hi, her, him, used to be him, her. I mean, you talk about him, huh? That'd be a problem. Front page cover, national attention, Facebook, even President Obama sent her a letter of congratulating for her courage. I'm sure glad Bill Clinton was in office and he'd be inviting her over to the over office. <laughs> Amen. You bet your brother. Hey, and Baptist churches across this country, in the pulpits today, last week, everything this fiasco started, are slamming him, her, and painted as a messed up, fouled up, degenerate process, and it is. Romans chapter 1 personified, man. But I want to tell you something. In life, I've watched for 40 years women in churches who never changed their name from Josephine to Joe, never had a sex change operation, yet they wear the pants of the man in the family. They run the show just like a man, and you usurp the authority of the man, and you never hear a word about it. Bruce Jenner as screwed Jennifer, as screwed up as she, he is, it is. <laughs> At least it's honest. 
I'll change my sexual orientation on the outside to match my heart attitude on the inside. But what we got in churches is spiritual transgenders. See, if the world does it, it's wrong. I mean, you see two lesbians walking down the street. One looks like a woman. The other one looks like Butch the Mailman. (laughs) It doesn't take a lot of imagination to know who's playing who. But in, but in, see, it's okay if the, it's, if, if when the world does it, it's wrong. But in churches, it's okay. We used to have this, used to have this lady that lived across the street. She's been, I think she's dead now, I don't know. But, and she, and she had a husband. And every time I would go out to take my dogs out or I'd be out there, when she'd bring this dog out, I, I just had to go in the garage. It was such a hilarious thing. I don't think she ever went anywhere that her husband didn't tag along. And she had this, she, I mean, she was, she was a bruiser. Let me just tell you that. And she, she had, she had this little chihuahua. Now, I love dogs. I do. And I would never hurt a dog for anything on the planet. Cats neither. I have a hard time hurting anything today. Uh, you know, or I, I just do. But I want to tell you. A chihuahua is just, and if you have a chihuahua, I'm thankful for you, and I know you probably love the little guy. But you got to admit, other than an ad for Taco Bell, what good are they? I mean, their eyes look like somebody just stepped on their tail, bugged out. They got a bark that just is so high-pitched, it hurts my ears. And she had this little chihuahua, and she t- and her husband. I used to. Her husband was about a hundred pounds, with the skinniest little legs you ever saw in your life. I mean, they're no bigger than matchsticks. And he had a high voice. And I used to watch him go out there, and she'd have that little dog on a leash, and he'd be out there standing just like this, watching, and she'd say, "Go potty, go potty." Go potty. And I could never tell if she was talking to the guy or the dog. She was so manly and persuasive. I had to go to potty. (laughs) And this little guy was so wimpy. And it was obvious that she ruled the roost. She's the one who said what happened, when it happened, where to go, where not to go. And, you know, I had a dog one time years ago. And this dog lived his life with his tail between his legs and his ears always down. You just look at him, and that dog would cower in the corner. And I would watch this woman. He would say something, oh, honey, why? And she'd look at him, and he'd just. <laughs> but you see, that's okay. The woman becomes a strong, dominant leader, and the husband is a weenie. And he, he, he submits himself to her, and we just look at that, and we never say a word and never address it. And it goes on in churches with pastors, wives, and women in churches all the time. And I don't care how big the guy is. I've seen guys that were six foot four, 300 pounds, that, it were, that, were, that were 
just as wimpy as you could find. And she will ruin the family. She will ruin the husband. She will ruin the ministry. She will ruin everything she touches. Sometimes God's people can be the most hypocritical, double-minded, double-standard people you ever met. And we just look at that in churches when she plays the dominant role and she is the man, even though she stayed a woman. And she is a man, we never address it. And then we want to clobber old Bruce Jennifer and his depravity. Look at verse 5. The thoughts of the righteous are right, but the counsel of the wicked are deceit. Now that's one of the great verses in life, on life. And when... Things go the way they go in life. Many times, this verse really tells you why. If you ever see and grasp verses like this in the Bible, you'll be great in dealing with people. It gives great insight into why things are the way they are and why they go the way they do. Now, the verse says this, The thoughts of the righteous are right, but the counsel of the wicked are deceit. Do you ever notice how when you get a child at two, three, four, five, six, seven, and they're a year old, you never met one who was an agnostic or an atheist. You never really met one that believed in evolution. You never met one that was a drunk or into drugs. Because we as children are right in our thoughts. We're pure in our thoughts. God did it that way so as a child our thoughts would be pure and right so we could find God. This is why Jesus always was around children. And he never forsook the little children coming to be with him. He realized that a child, when he is young, has his thoughts right. Now, stay with me on this. This is incredible. The only way we learn to reject God and the Bible and to get away from all the things that he has for us is a learned behavior. It's to be taught by somebody older that we associate with. Many times it's the parents. Kids five to ten years old wants to go to church. Mommy, can we go to church today? Daddy, I want to go to church. He's up and ready to go while mom and dad are still in bed. And he says, I want to go, I want to go, I want to be there, I want to get what's right, I want to hear the Bible, I want to go to Sunday school class. They don't want to go, and from 5 to 10 or 11, he wants to go, but then from 12 on down the line, they want to go, he doesn't want to go anymore. You know why? Because he thought right, but by your teaching him through his learned behavior, somebody older is always the one who teaches the younger ones what's wrong versus what's right. Let me tell you something. As a kid growing up, every dirty joke I ever heard, every dirty habit I ever formed, every vile thought or every rotten joke I ever heard was taught to me by an older boy. I never thought of smoking or drinking till I got in with the older guys and they said, oh, this is what's cool. This is what you do. It was a learned behavior. But as a young child, my thoughts were right. It took somebody older in this world to take that away from me and fill it with the filth of this world.
is to be taught by somebody older that we associate with. And families with multiple children. I've watched parents have four, three or four kids. And I've watched them lose the first one. I lost them, uh, the oldest one. Then I've watched them learn the next one. Then the youngest one. And then right on down the line. And they never figure it out. They never figure out that the reason they got the, lost the first one is because they, the oldest, because they weren't doing what's right and somebody else trained him that way. Then he trained the rest of the kids coming up. I've seen women who have left their kids have to work for a living and left their kids with somebody else, with maybe a, a grandparent or an aunt or a, somebody out here or a babysitter, and uh, there's other kids of, uh, in there that are nowhere near where they need to be with God, and Karen says, I can't take my child there anymore. She's coming home with the worst stuff you ever saw in your life. You know why? Because somebody older taught her that. Somebody younger have their thoughts right. The importance of grounding our children before they hit life, they hit school, they hit job, they hit the world. Kid hits 15 or 16, he's rebellious into the world, he's uncontrollable. We lose all influence in their life. They get into booze, they get into drugs, they get into all the worldly things. And we, we scratch our head and think, it just happened. A beautiful rose bush just doesn't happen. Planting flowers in your garden just doesn't happen. And one day you come out and wow, there's the rose bush. That's beautiful. It's gorgeous. Red and yellow roses. That flower just didn't happen to bloom. The seed was sown long before it popped up. It just took some time for it to blossom. And right now, your children in this world who have right thoughts. The seed is being sown either by you or the people they associate with in your kids. And someday they will blossom. This is why the importance of camp, having a week where your kids get everything out of their life. The first time we had to camp, a lot of kids didn't say, well, I can't take my cell phone, I can't take this, I can't take that. What fun is this going to be? That's because their whole world is about associating with people outside of one-on-one contact. One time in their life, one week of their life, where everything from the world is completely out and all they get to is indoctrinated with the things of God. What parent would pass that up? And a lot of parents will say, I want my kids to go. Your kid doesn't want to go. Did last year, oh, didn't he? See what I'm talking about? As a drunk, as a drug addict, as a fornicator, or a godly child. It didn't start that way. Somebody educated them out of the value of knowing all about God. I had a lady one time came to me and she had a daughter. And her daughter, oh, this has happened so many times, it's unbelievable. Her daughter... I was hooked up with a, with a guy who was an absolute slug. He was an absolute worthless. He was the most worthless kid. I mean, he is into drinking, and, 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 and she, she saved girl, saved mom and dad. And she met this guy someplace, I don't know, and they got a relationship going, and she hung out with this guy. This guy was the most worthless guy you ever met in your life. He caused nothing but problems. And I, and I, and it, it's none of my business. It isn't my child. But when the mother comes to me and she starts ragging on everything and she starts talking, and they, they all do it, she's blaming this guy. 
She says, oh, you don't know. This guy is this. This guy is that. This guy has been a headache. This guy has caused this problem. This guy is the biggest jerk. This guy is this. This guy is that. He's brought so much strife into our life. And I let her go on, and I simply, then I stopped, and I asked her a question. Okay, so this guy's a jerk. I get that. You made your point. Let me ask you a question. What kind of value system did you instill in your daughter that she picked up that jerk? It isn't the guy's fault. Jerk is a jerk is a jerk. You failed to give her a core value system that has a sign, no jerks need apply. But we like to blame everybody else. Now, not only is it true as a little child growing up, you little gals and guys that have good thoughts, right thoughts, and we need to protect that. Moms and dads need to protect that. You need to make sure that the influences, the associations that they get into, don't, don't ruin that. Protect that. I mean, they're going to have to deal with it sooner or later, but right now, you keep that right thought process going. But not only is it true of children, but it's true the day you got saved. And I don't care if you're 50, 40, 30, or 20. The day you got saved, that Bible says you're a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away, but all things become new. The moment you get up off your knees after trusting Christ, your personal Savior, you're as clean in your thought process as a three-year-old. Over there in Mark chapter 5, verse 15, you got the story of the maniac of Gadaria. And he was demon-possessed. And he, he left his family, left his wife, and lived in the grave, uh, in the tombs, uh, in, a, in a cemetery. He was strong. He could break chains, and no man could hold him. And he was walking around naked, and he was yelling, howling at the moon at night. Then one day he met Jesus. Amen. And Jesus changed everything about him. And you know, if you ever have that day where you meet Jesus, it'll change everything about you. Amen. And the Bible says after he had his encounter with Jesus... That he was sitting there, and the Bible says, in his right mind. You know what happened when you get saved? You get a right mind. You know what happened before you were saved? You had the wrong mind. You couldn't have a right mind before you got saved, or your life depended on it. But the moment you get saved, you now have a right mind, you have the right thoughts, and now you have the ability to make the right decisions. You're as pure as a three-year-old. The righteous are right, but the counsel of the wicked are deceit. You're just as clean as you were at three and four. Now what happens from here on out will depend on one thing, who you associate with and what they teach you. And just like a little three or four-year-old who has right thought process will get with the wrong kids at school and take him away from the parents, you get saved at 20, 30, 40, 50, and you decide to go to church, get baptized, do what's right, get discipled, get your Bible, and then you run into some old friend that tells you how goofy that is. That's how it works. Right mind. Didn't say perfect, but right He's right. Psalms 1 says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, and sinneth seed and the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. Counsel of the ungodly. 
You're not sinless. You still have your flesh to deal with. But now you can make right choices because for the first time in your life, you are in your right mind and you have the ability because your thoughts now are right. You need to guard that once you get saved, just like a parent guards that little child of who they associate with. Now, I'm telling you, you do what you want to do. You want some advice from me? I'll tell you. Parents, cut out of your kid's life anybody who's a negative influence in any way, shape, or form. I don't care who it is. It may be their cousin. It may be their uncle. It may be whatever. You cut out of their life any association that anybody's going to have any quality time with them, that they're going to influence them. Because you're going to see it every time. You're going to see God get the short end of the stick because that old nature is going to gravitate to the world. And my advice to you as a parent, cut them out. Monitor it very carefully. Watch what your kids do on your inner face or no face or ugly face or whatever they have. Keep them, watch them on the internet. Watch who they're talking to. Watch what they're doing. Watch what they're saying. Watch who they're hanging out with. One of these days you'll wind up and wonder where your child went and right under your nose, the thief in that little iPhone took them from you. Now, for you older people that just got saved, Let me give you some good advice. You don't have to take it, but it's good advice, and it's free. You get everybody out of your life that doesn't, is not conducive to your spiritual growth. Don't roll the dice. You say, that's a hard thing. A lot of things in Christianity are a hard thing. Him dying on a cross was a hard thing. He did it for you. You gave himself up for you. Now you give everything else up for him. Just my suggestion don't look at me like I'm, you got to sign a death decree going out the door today, though it wouldn't hurt you. Make sure the people you have in your life are going to give support those right thoughts. Don't allow somebody to come in and start to tear down something that God's doing. Shut them out of your life. Some of you are so weak-kneed and so, so uh, uh, wishy-washy when it comes to things like that. You let somebody tear down this church or tear down another Christian or tear down this, and you just stand there and just put your tail between your legs and just take it all in. The devil will take that and he'll use that. My advice to you is to look at them, go for about five minutes, that you make sure they're on the right track and then just let them have it. In Jesus' name, of course. Don't tolerate it. For the first time, get some steel in your backbone. Take a stand for something. Don't allow people to manipulate you and push you around in what you're thinking. God saved you and gave you a right mind. Do never let somebody take that right mind from you. The greatest possession you got outside your salvation, and it came because of your salvation. And in both cases, a child... And a new baby Christian. You both have the ability to make right choices, to do right things. Because now you have the right thoughts and the right mind. But it will depend in both cases on who you associate with. Growing up physically as a little child. Growing up spiritually as a person who just got saved no matter how old you are. And when you take counsel from from the older Christian who loves God and his word, then you will become a wise man. That's a good thing. You hang around people who support what you're doing. You hang around people who encourage you. They edify you. 
They love God like you do. Maybe they know a little bit more about the Bible and they'll help you get through things in life uh, that you need. Or you'll hang out with the older, godless, worldly man or woman, in some cases, saved or lost. Some of the wickedest people I ever met in my life, you're going to spend an eternity with in heaven. And those people will instruct you and give you counsel. And they'll take that pure, right mind that God put in you the day you got saved, and they'll destroy everything about it. And the fool and the wise man. The wise man will stay with the counsel of God because Proverbs 19.21 says that will stand. But the fool will hang out with the crowd that will take away the right things, his right thinking, and give him a deception. A deceit, verse 5. And with that, he'll set up all the idols in his heart, like we talked about last week, Ezekiel 14. Hey, I've seen God's people that are so wrong that they, they could never find their way out of the woods if wrong was woods. Now, you know what? They'll go to their grave because they think they're right simply because they've allowed the things in their life which penetrated into their heart that deceived them. And now, not only are they deceived, but they're lost in their deception. Lost from finding their way out of it. Now you want to believe what you want to believe. Doesn't matter what the Bible says. And again, for the umpteenth time, how easy and uncomplicated the Christian life really is. If Proverbs does one thing, and one thing well, it strips the complexity out of what we hear, how hard it is to be a Christian. It isn't hard to be a Christian. What's hard is to do what's right as a Christian. That's the problem. And boy, the book of Proverbs lays that out. The simplicity of a life with God simply based on the instructions. Realizing that in this life there's a wise man and a foolish man. There's a virtuous woman and a wicked woman. Staying away from the wicked side of things and putting herself around the godly side of things. Taking the right instruction to be everything that God wants you to be. And coming to the place that you realize the day you got saved, God puts you in your right mind. You now have the right thoughts so you can do the right things. Don't let anybody ever take that from you. Parents, guard your children. You as a Christian who just got saved or you've been saved for a while and you're starting to get into the Bible, guard what you have. Don't let any friend, don't let anybody, don't let anybody you hang out with, don't let any associate ever take that from you. Because that's all you got that holds you and God together. That'll destroy the rottenness to our bones. We'll destroy the structure that God has put in our life. Well, we'll hold up there. We'll have